Join us here Tuesday nights. See you then. My name is Bob Whitney. There's a lot of I went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter live on television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch streaming video from anywhere in the world. Uh, of the, uh, literally yesterday, when I say anywhere in the world, we are getting uh, probably a third of our emails are from Australia, Peru, the Caribbean, all parts of Europe, all the time. So uh, I mean that. Anywhere in the world you can watch streaming video, and we also have all the shows archived at hotm.tv, so you can watch them there as well. People want to know about the book, I Was a Born Again Mormon. You can get that through manuscript currently online at www.bornagainmormon.com, and you can just download that and have a printed copy for in your hands within minutes. How about joining a weekly verse-by-verse, never-denominational Bible study? Join us at campus every Sunday, either at Utah State in Logan or at University of Utah here in Salt Lake City, especially people who are transitioning out of Mormonism into biblical Christianity. Uh, Come and you can hear the Bible taught just verse by verse. We have a really great group there that's growing and people get along and there's food sometimes. And uh, go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. Every Sunday afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m., you can hear this very program rebroadcast on AM820, KUTR, The Truth. Uh, AM820 is really uh, a fantastic Christian Christian, uh, radio program, um, and we're so blessed to have joined their exceptional uh, programming team, KUTR, The Truth, 820 uh, a.m., every Sunday from 1 to 2 p.m., We had a couple of innovative young men, uh, Brad and James, come out to the program several months back. Uh, They were making a film about Mormonism, and we have a trailer. It's really starting to look good. It's uh, It's called Religion and Redemption, a documentary on Mormonism. And we have a couple minute trailer to show you that right now. And let me tell you that those of you who are religious are equally as sinful as any prostitute, homosexual, drug addict, thief, anyone. Because religion is the opposite of redemption. Religion is the enemy of the work of Jesus. There's not a a religion on earth that will save you. The very best and biggest Christian denominations in this world are not going to save anybody. And uh, redemption comes only by the blood of Jesus Christ. The product is a self-righteous dependence on yourself. They still operate under law. They still believe they have to do. You have to live righteously. You're not just saved by grace. And is it the belief in the LDS church that it takes more than grace, like it's grace plus works? Yes. Yes. Heavenly Father can't do it all for us. We have to have our free agency to choose. Just do what the church asks for, like uh, be good, follow the commandments. Fight against this horrible enemy of religion. Faith alone will not save. There's still covenants I haven't made, and there's a lot of sacred things that I haven't done yet. Religion says this, if I obey, God will love me. But if we don't do our part, we don't deserve it. If we just sit on our can do a nothing, you know, we don't deserve salvation, but we have to seek him and we have to try 
our very best to obey him. And then after that, then he'll do the rest. If you were to die in 10 minutes, do you believe you would go to heaven? Um, no, not right now. If in fact Mormonism is not Christianity, if it does not meet the standards of what the New Testament describes as the Christian faith, then obviously they're lost. The Bible says if you're going to be saved by the law, you've got to keep all of it. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you've broken it all. And that's why Ephesians says not by works. We're not saved by works because we cannot work hard enough to be perfect. Leaving Mormonism is a cultural identity and it's very hard for people to walk away from it because you aren't just changing a belief system. It isn't like just switching from being Lutheran to Baptist. It's like switching from being Jewish to Christian. Redemption says God does love you. God has loved you in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, still totally jacked up in every way. Christ died for us. We'll get those guys, uh, Brad and James, um, on the show in uh, the summer to talk about what's going on with that uh, documentary. Of course, they chose it when I had the flu and a fever blister on my face to interview me. Where's makeup? I tell you. All right, you know, we have a lot of people who watch Heart of the Matter who are atheists. In many cases, these people have become atheists because they were LDS first, came to find out what a hoax and lie it was, and are burned up, scorched over when it comes to believing in God. Recently, a great viewer, and I can't remember his name, he forwarded this short video clip that speaks to atheists. His name is Derek? Jared. Jared, Jared thank you. Uh, take a look. It's really insightful. It's called Reverse. I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It's just foolish to think that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. Without God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. And that's how I felt before Christ opened my eyes, changed my heart, and reversed my thinking. I am lost and in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine without God. Life is an endless cycle of guilt and shame. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you will be, is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings purpose to the pain and suffering in the world, that there is an all-knowing God with a cosmic plan. It's foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. That was not awesome. God is, uh, he works through people, he works through creative people. That, that person, whoever put that together, probably not his profession, just did it on his own accord or her own accord. Don't even know who did it. But uh, that's kind of how God works in, in his uh, world and, and just praise him for, uh, uh, and praise people for moving as he directs them. So with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we pray for those who are burned by religion and who... Uh, 
have listened to things that have harmed their heart. We pray that they will come to you and get rid of the bitterness and seek to have your love. We pray for the program tonight for all those who volunteer their time for our viewing audiences, wherever they may be, and that I will say what you want me to say in Jesus' name, amen. As we've said many times in the past, uh, some of the distinctive aspects of Joseph Smith's Mormonism was that he supplied supposedly inspired information on on a number of topics that make Mormonism distinct from all other uh, Christian faith and or religions, especially since most of the information that Joseph Smith provided was unverifiable, at least at the time. Remember, Joseph claimed to know where American Indians came from, and he said that there were men on the moon, and he described them as being about six feet tall and dressed as Quakers. This is not a lie. And he actually proclaimed that he had translated the writings of Abraham, which were from a common Egyptian funeral text. Through an imaginative interpretation and application of a single vague biblical reference about baptism for the dead, an entire ritual superstructure was built from which today millions of people spend millions of hours doing a made-up religious ritual. Uh, Our topic tonight, King David's sin. Now, what does that have to do with Mormonism? They claim, by virtue of Joseph Smith's revelations, that David is in hell, spirit prison, to this very day, and that he will never, ever get to exaltation because of his sin. Jews and Bible-believing Christians say something much different. So while the topic tonight might not seem like a, or might seem like a, well, what's the big deal about what the LDS believe happened to David? The LDS position greatly reflects their errant version of how God views people, sin, forgiveness, and King David. Now to show you the import King David has had with the Jews and the establishment of Christianity, let me talk for a minute about him. It's significant to know that the Bible mentions David's proper name 969 times. Abraham, 230 times. Even Jesus, 26 times less than David at 943. This, of course, is not to say that David is anything by comparison to Jesus, but he was a picture of the Messiah and his impact on the Judeo-Christian life was profound. The most oft-quoted Old Testament passages found in the New Testament were uttered by David. And the most oft-quoted passages that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament were all David's. The name David means beloved. Speaking to a sorcerer in Acts 13, Paul clearly illustrated the type of man David was, having God say that he raised up to Israel, quote, David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. End quote. David was the eighth and the youngest son of Jesse, uh, a citizen of Bethlehem. As a very young man, he tended his father's sheep in the uplands of Judah. David was a shepherd of sheep born in Bethlehem. According to 1 Samuel 17, his first recorded exploits were violent encounters with wild beasts that sought to attack his sheep. With his own unaided hand, he killed first a lion and then a bear, according to 1 Samuel 17, beating them to death in open conflict with a club. Now, while David was out with his flocks, the prophet Samuel paid an unexpected visit to Bethlehem, having been guided there by divine revelation. And once there, the prophet offered up sacrifice and then called the elders of Israel and all of Jesse's family to this sacrificial meal. Among all who appeared before Samuel, he failed to discover who was supposed to be king based on what God wanted. Eventually, David was sent for, and the prophet Samuel immediately recognized him as the chosen one of God to succeed Saul, who was the people's first choice to be their king. 
Accordingly, and in anticipation of his future kinship, uh, Samuel poured anointing oil over David's young head, and David then went back to shepherding. But according to 1 Samuel 16, it says, quote, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We never read of the Spirit of the Lord departing from David any time throughout his life, even in spite of his personal failures. In fact, after many of his personal failures occurred, he continued to write inspired Holy Scripture. As a young man, David played the harp for Saul, and when he was about 20 years old, he showed up at a battle between uh, uh, the Philistines and Israel, and you know the story, David killed Goliath. And the result of this great victory was the Israelites became empowered and they chased the Philistines and had victory. So David's popularity from this kill made Saul very jealous, so much so that Saul tried a number of ways to kill him, but David stayed true to the king and continued to prosper. In the end, David, by necessity, had to become a fugitive to escape the vengeance of Saul. I mean, excuse me, yeah, of Saul. And... As a vagabond out there, he experienced a whole host of wild adventures. But all the while, David remained true to King Saul and proved himself a real heroic warrior on behalf of Israel. When Saul was killed in battle, David was made king of Israel at 30 years of age and reigned from the place called Hebron. His throne was hotly contested many times, yet David always prevailed. When he was anointed king over all of Israel, he sought out a new place of government since the government was sitting now in Hebron. And so he discovered this Jebusite uh, fortress on the side of a hill at Zion. And David conquered, went in and he conquered these people, these Jebusites, who were pagans, and he made the site the capital of Israel. This city of David is known as Jerusalem today. David now resolved to bring the Ark of the Covenant to this new capital, and ultimately he was successful, and he placed it in a tent which he had made specifically for this purpose. And then, according to 1 Chronicles 16, David carefully set in order all the rituals of divine worship at Jerusalem, with Abiathar being the high priest. Because of David's heart for God, a new religious era began for Israel. He truly was a king to them. Soon, because of his military conquests, an enormous area of land was under his righteous and fair sway. And at the height of his glory, when he was ruling over a vast empire and his capital was enriched with the spoils of many lands, David fell into temptation and sin and his character was marred by the sin of adultery. It is of great interest that while David's immense military conquests are recorded only in a few verses, the sad story of his fall is given in great detail, making it a story fit for the ages and a great warning to those who have been placed in a position of responsibility. Unfortunately, this crime of adultery with Bathsheba and the attempt to conceal it led to another egregious sin. And David was then guilty of setting up the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. God sent Nathan the prophet to David to bring home the crimes to the conscience of this guilty monarch. And David was truly repentant. Being a man after God's own heart, David bewailed his sins before God in bitterness. The 32nd and 51st Psalm reveal the deep struggles of his soul and and his personal spiritual recovery and restoration. Bathsheba became his wife after David had killed her husband, and as Nathan the prophet had prophesied to them, their firstborn child died. But it is also noteworthy how God restores the fix and fixes uh, the fallen. And he uses sin for their good if we will let them because it was this very relationship with Bathsheba that produced a second son whom David named Solomon and who ultimately succeeded him on the throne and fostered the seed that the Messiah would ultimately come from. This lineage Jesus himself even claimed when introducing himself in Revelation 22 saying, I, Jesus, am the root 
and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Life was both peaceful and, as a result of his sin, troubling for David, especially with regard to his own family. So where he continued to lead and amass tremendous amounts of wealth and power, he also faced an extreme amount of personal pain, betrayal, and discomfort as an individual family man. After a reign of 40 years and six months, David died around 1015 BC at the age of 70 years and was buried in the city of his own name. His tomb is still pointed out on Mount Zion. David, in his prophetical and in his regal character, was a great type or picture of the Messiah. The book of Psalms commonly bears the title, The Psalms of David, because he was the largest contributor to the collection, totaling about 80 of them, with many of them being written after the Bathsheba affair. With the exception of his failures as a human being, David lived in harmony with both the priesthood and the prophets, which was a sure sign that the spirit of uh, his government had been completely loyal to the aims of God. The nation had never been oppressed by him, but had been left in freedom to its ancient liberties. According to 2 Samuel 8.15, and as far as his power went, he had striven to act justly to all. Any Jew and most Bible-believing Christians know and patiently understand that his weak indulgence to his sons and his own personal sins had been bitterly atoned for and were certainly forgotten by God. The writer of Hebrews includes David in his chapter 11 uh, Hall of Fame of the Faithful. And Jesus repeatedly, even after his ascension, associates his very existence to David. But the Mormons say, what? He's in hell. David is in hell and will remain there because of his sins, one of which is unforgivable. So here again, Joseph Smith's Mormonism runs roughshod over the beautiful gospel, the story of God's grace and peace and truth. While the Bible offers the repentant sinner forgiveness for any sin, including murder, Mormonism maintains that a murderer cannot achieve eternal life. And they use David as an example. Joseph Smith said in Doctrine and Covenants 42, 18, quote, Thou shalt not kill, and he that kills shall not have forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. He also says in another section, Doctrine and Covenants 132, that those who have been married in the new and everlasting covenant sealed in the Mormon temple will be forgiven of any sin except murder wherein they shed innocent blood. This LDS teaching on murder has led the Mormons to conclude that when King David arranged to have Uriah killed, that he committed the unpardonable sin which would keep him from ever being exalted. Joseph Smith taught, quote, No murderer has eternal life. But Matthew 12, 31, Jesus said, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So what did Joseph do in response to these words of Jesus? He simply redefined what blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is, saying in Doctrine and Covenants 132, quote, The blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which shall not be forgiven in the world nor out of the world, is in that ye commit murder, wherein ye shed innocent blood, and assent unto my death after you have received the new and everlasting covenant, saith the Lord God. And he that abideth not this law can in no wise enter into my glory, but shall be damned, saith the Lord. In two other places, Joseph Smith reiterated this stance. In Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 339, he said, quote, A murderer, for instance, one that sheds innocent blood, cannot have forgiveness. David sought repentance at the hand of God carefully with tears for the murder of Uriah, but he could only get it through hell. He got a promise that his soul would not be left in hell. Remember that line that Joseph Smith applied to David, that he got a promise that his soul would not be left in hell. And then, as recorded in Discourses of the Prophet Joseph Smith, he also said, quote, Remissions of sin by baptism was not to be preached to murderers. All the priests of Christendom might pray for a murderer on this scaffold forever, but could not avail so much as a gnat towards their forgiveness. There is no forgiveness for murderers. Applying these teachings to David, Joseph went on and taking the Bible completely out of context said, Now, 
We read that many bodies of the saints arose at Christ's resurrection, but it seems David did not. Why? Because he had been a murderer. So let me first explain what the Bible actually said about David in context, and then finish up by showing you the slippery slope that Joseph Smith introduced by claiming that murder is a sin that can't be forgiven because of its egregiousness. In Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost, or 50 days from the day of the Lord's ascension, when the Holy Spirit de descended upon the living apostles. Gathered there were 3,000 plus Jews listening to the uh, apostles speak. And these to these Jews, David was very, very important. It is not by any mistake that first they were gathered in the very city of his name, conquered and carried by him, the city of peace, the city of David, Jerusalem. Neither is it accidental that Peter in his uh, reaching out to them was, would use the words of David to reach the Jews listening with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, it's really quite interesting, but the Jewish writings in Heros Chagiv, volume 78, Rabbi Jos wrote, quote, David died at Pentecost and all Israel bewailed him and followed their sacrifices the day after. So really interesting background information on these verses. In an effort to convince the Jews gathered there at the day of Pentecost that Jesus was the one to look to and to no other, Peter had been using Old Testament scripture. And then he tells them that they have, they have crucified the true Messiah. This is where Peter brings David's words into his sermon. And he quotes when David spoke prophetically of the Messiah's coming. The doctrine David introduced was the, was the Messiah must rise from the dead and that he would not be corrupted, okay? So Peter quotes David's words, which were recorded in Psalms chapter 16. Um, so Peter stands up and he quotes David's prophetic utterances saying, Acts 2.25, For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Joseph Smith interpreted those words as a, being applied to David. They are a prophetic utterance of the Messiah, the true Messiah, who God said he would not leave his soul in Hades, nor would he allow the Holy One to see corruption. Uh, what's really interesting about that, too, is that David wrote the psalm that this is in prior to his affair with Bathsheba. So this was not an appeal by David to say, you will not leave my soul in hell. I'm going to be in here until I pay the uttermost farthing and then get a lower kingdom of the celestial kingdom. This had nothing to do with his sin at all that he quotes this. Joseph Smith, the so-called prophet of the LDS faith, said that David received a promise that his soul would not be left in hell. But these words were simply an utterance toward the Messiah. In fact, David said these pr prophetic words well before the Bathsheba event occurred. In another place in the Bible, Acts 13, Paul clearly points out when teaching another group of Jews that David's words in Psalm 16 had nothing to do with, uh, with him, but with the Messiah. Listen to what Paul said, quote, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Again, referring to David's prophetic utterance, Speaking of the Messiah, not of David. Going back to Peter at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, let's hear what else he had to say to the Jews who revered David. Verse 29, men and brethren, Peter continues, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is here with us today. Peter says this because he wants them to say, look, David's gone, but someone else came and rose from the dead. That's who you need to look to. He goes on, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, meaning David's lineage, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. 
Joseph Smith said point blank that David was given this promise that his soul would not be left in hell nor see corruption, but it's very clear that the prophetic promise was all about Jesus. Got all that? Now this teaching about David is throughout Mormonism. When I was a kid and a teenager, and I didn't understand why, they'd go around the room, who's your favorite Old Testament guy? Who's yours? And they'd get to me and I'd say, David, I love the Goliath story. And there'd be like crickets, you know, all the leaders, mm. he's in hell. I finally learned that, you know? And, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's very well known. Why is it important? Joseph and Mormonism thereafter said David's sin of murder was unforgivable, but he, uh, he only set the murder up, first of all. He didn't actually shed the blood. He was just a conspirator. Now, why is that important? Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinner, did the very same thing many times over. He did it in the case of stoning Stephen. He was complicit in guarding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, a Christian, the first Christian martyr. He, Paul says he shut up many Christians in prison, it says in Acts 26, uh, 10, who were then put to death. Uh, Acts 22, 4, Paul describes saying, quote, and I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women. Does this not, is this not com as complicit in murder as David? Is Paul in hell too? Besides being absolutely wrong on the biblical status of David, Mormonism creates several other problems in their stance that the blood of Jesus cannot atone for certain sins, especially murder. First, they once again limit God's ability and willingness to forgive all sins, which tacitly demeans the blood of Jesus Christ. I want everyone out there, and I know at the point of, mount, uh, point of the mountain there are people who watch this show, uh, men in prison, women in prison, the Mark Hoffmans, the Lafferty brothers, uh, that Jesus' blood paid for all sin, all sin, including yours. Don't let this pernicious lie based in human idiocy uh, keep you in chains. Go to the Lord in your cell. He will forgive you of everything always. Secondly, the LDS stand places sin in a hierarchy. When they say murder cannot be forgiven, well, then you start having this hierarchy. And, and certainly there's a hierarchy in sin in earthly laws. We know that murder is much more egregious in an earthly sense. Latter-day Saints say, well, if it's that way on earth, it's that way in heaven. But to God, stealing and being unrepentant of it is as bad as murdering and being unrepentant of it in terms of, of your living with him. Sin is sin. And to truly repent, um, the, the LDS say to be forgiven of the stuff, you have to truly repent. And if you negate any step of what the LDS say is repentance, you cannot go to heaven. So they have like six steps that you have to do. You have to first recognize you've sinned. You have to feel sorrow for having sinned. You have to confess that you've sinned. You have to ask forgiveness for having sinned. You have to make restitution for having sinned and you have to forsake the sin once and for all. If you have the sin of stealing candy bars and you go through all six steps, but you go and you steal another candy bar, that sin plus the, the sin that you repented of before comes back on your head. Because you didn't restitute, you didn't complete, I mean, you didn't forsake, you didn't complete all the, the steps, you get it? Well, this is the problem with the sin of murder, Mormons say. You cannot make restitution for taking a life. Therefore, you can't repent. Therefore, you cannot receive forgiveness. And therefore, you will never go and live with God. And, you know, unfortunately, um, Spencer W. Kimball, in his horrible literate, uh, literary piece of filth, The Miracle of Forgiveness, he said this, listen to this and what it did to the minds and hearts of people. One reason murder is unforgivable is that having taken a life, the murderer cannot restore it. Restitution in full is not possible. Also, he sickly adds, those are my words, having robbed one of virtue, it is impossible to give it back. So we have this idea that if you're involved in sexual immorality prior to marriage, that is borderline of murder because you can't make restitution for that. I'd like to ask Kimball, if he were alive, how do you make restitution for almost any sin? How do you make restitution for, say, abortion? How do you make restitution for slapping your mother, which I would never do? How do you make... How do you make restitution? Well, maybe not. No. How do you make restitution for gossiping? How do I make restitution for t saying something bad about a poor girl in my neighborhood and it gets all around the neighborhood and it's not true? How can I make restitution for that? There's only one person who can make restitution for all of it.
and he did. Jesus' blood. But the Latter-day Saints say no. They have a hierarchy of sin, and that's how they keep people trapped. And so I want to end with a verse, and we're going to go to the phones. And I read this the other day, and it just touched me, and I love it. Let me read to you what Jesus did. Listen to this prophetically uttered by Isaiah. Talking about Jesus, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That might be you sitting in the jail. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to counsel those who, uh, console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. With that, let's open up the phones. They're already full, but keep trying. 801-973-8820 or 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. LDS callers, if possible. And uh, turn down your TV sets, please. We have Paul from California. We have Kai from Washington. We have Chris from Sandy. And we have Michael from Ogden. We're going to come back and take those calls after this brief promo for our partners program. watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. Now, we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can. And everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 888-868-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104, or get on the internet, www.hotm.tv for more information. God bless you all. We're back. We're going to LDS caller Kai in, I guess, Washington State. Kai, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. How are you, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. Um, well, I have been a convert for almost two years now, and I found reading through the scriptures on my own that things were not congruent with, the, with what the church was was saying, and um, I just felt really trapped, and I told um, the lady on the phone when I called that about four or five days ago, it really ripped my heart out, and I was devastated, and I cried. Like, it was really, really devastating for me. Um, and I found your little example for the, um, the letter to resign, and I'm really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. I'm tailoring it, adding my own little, little two cents in there. But, um, anyway, my question was, um, on the three levels of glory, you know, the celestial kingdom, how there's three levels in it? Yeah. Well, there's also a song in the church that families can be together forever, and this really doesn't make any sense, because if you want to attain, well, if they say that you want to attain to become a god and a god of your own world and whatever, that's the top level in the celestial kingdom. Yeah. But yet families can be together forever. That's not congruent with, because do you not want your children to attain the highest glory? I mean, is that just for yourself? I never understood that. Oh, I see. <laughs> so what you're saying is if you as the parents 
become gods in the highest degree and then your children also go up to the highest degree, they would be gods too. Is that what you mean? Exactly. And how is that? Yes. And the whole families are together forever. They're going to be separated doing, doing their own thing and then the parents are going to be doing their own thing. Well, they have, uh, they have managerial god meetings about every 10 centuries. And all the gods come together in a park, and they, they catch up on how it's going with all their worlds. And th <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's very, it's very odd. <laughs> yeah, you know what it was? I really believe, having read a lot about Joseph Smith, is that he was ahead of his time in this fantastical-type thinking. Swedenborg impressed him and all this. And so he, he came up with this kind of, it would be like us watching when Star Wars came out. Just like, whoa! Where did that come from? And today you watch Star Wars, you're like, eh. Well, Joseph Smith's ideas were like, whoa, religious Star Wars. And today we're like, you got to be kidding. You know, but they're still <laughs> buying into it. So really good point, Kai. Thanks. Keep going. And, um, I watched your show. This is my second or third time. And I really appreciate from the bottom of my heart what you're, what you're doing. It, it's really pulling me out and it's opening my eyes. Thanks as for, well as many others that are watching it. I've seen many people call in, and it's just terrific what, you go, what you're doing. Thanks so much, Kai. Thanks for watching. Tell your friends. I will, Sean. Thanks. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we are going. Uh, first of all, Sarah wants to know what I think of Mitt Romney as president. Uh, you know, I got in. We, uh, the IRS actually investigated us years back, a couple years back, when I commented on Romney when he was a candidate. So I'm going to say... What do I think, because I don't know what the law is now still, so what do I think of an LDS president? And uh, I think that uh, it would be a, a very bad thing. I think that what it would do is it would legitimize Mormonism around the world, more than Mormonism has already tried to legitimize itself. And so what they, what they do is they get to have their cake and eat it too, because they get to say, we haven't retracted polygamy, we haven't retracted our beliefs on who Jesus is, we haven't retracted anything, we get to keep it all, and yet we get to put somebody in the White House who is ours, without having retracted one bit of their crazy stuff. All they, and even in Blacks and the Priesthood, all they've done is rescinded uh, what was said. They never apologized, really. They just said, no, God wants something different now. So I think they are duplicitous. I think it would be a horrible thing. I think it would be very appealing, and I think they'd be very good at management. But in terms of the spiritual uh, uh, outcome for many millions of people, I think it would be detrimental. We're going to go to Chris in Sandy, Utah. Uh, Chris, first-time caller. Chris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Pardon me? Chris, you're on the air. I'm up next. You're up now. I'm up next. You're up now, man. Turn your TV down. It's down. All right, you're on the air. Chris, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Is this Sean? Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? Good. I just have a question about where the LBS gets their uh, theory of three levels of heaven. Celestial, terrestrial, and all that. If you can explain that to me, and yeah, you know. they get they get it uh, partially. Joseph Smith took part a couple of the words from the Bible, First Corinthians, and he took celestial and he took uh, terrestrial. And okay. Paul, in, in Paul was talking about the heavens and the earth, terra firma, earth, celestial, heavens. That's all he was talking about. Well, Joseph, you know, with his imagination, pre-Star Wars days. Woo! Let's throw in a telestial. And so he came up with three kingdoms. He's always bettering, besting everything, you know. And he throw in a third. That's where it came from, by direct revelation, according to him. That's where wow. it came from. Okay, well, I'm going to hang up. I want, can you touch a little bit more on it so I can listen to you? Okay, thanks, man. All right, thank you. Okay, bye. You're going to have to watch the replay. Uh, uh, watch it on next uh, Tuesday, because I answered the question, uh, Chris, you just didn't hear it. We're going to go to Michael and Ogden uh, on line three. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Hey, Michael. Uh, yeah, let me turn my TV down. Okay, here we go. Uh, Sean, uh, well, first off, great thing. I'm out of the church now. Thanks to you, I downloaded the book, The uh, Born Again Mormon. Thank you. Oh, so you're welcome. I'm even working on getting my name off of that, and I know the process to go through looking at some old things. So, so when you were coming up, Sean, you're, you're not old, but you're probably 20 years older than me, I guess. I'm 24. 
Do you remember ten reading years. In the Book of Mormon about synagogues? You ever Wait, what? I'm sorry. Synagogue? What, Michael? Do you ever remember in the Book of Mormon the word synagogue? It was used a few times. Yeah, I do remember okay. that. Okay. Did you know my grandmother was Jewish? Synagogues didn't come into existence until between 587 and 537 during the Babylonian captivity. And the oldest, oldest archaeological finding of a synagogue is in Egypt, 3rd third third century B.C. Wow. They didn't even, after the temple was no more, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. So how did they know, how did he know about that? Unless he was written in King James Bible. Isn't that funny? That is really good. You point that, I'm going to get off, and I just want you to point that out to those folks that that shows right there, he got it out of the Bible. You got the King it. James was reading it. He didn't even, it didn't even exist when so far Nephi and Lehi came over. But thank you so much for the show, Sean. And thank you, Michael. There, man, and I'm going to come down and uh, I'm going to meet you guys um, that place in Salt Lake. Uh, what is it you go, where is it you go to sometimes? We go all over the place. Come so down to, uh, come down and like watch some time, and we'll meet up somewhere after. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank hey, you. Bye-bye. Hey, uh, what he's talking about is, for those of you who don't understand, the Book of Mormon is supposed to be a record of what happened here in the Americas. A group of people are supposed to have left uh, Jerusalem, came over here, established a whole big colony of people, and became the American Indians in the end, and they kept a record. Well, what he's saying is the word synagogue was developed about 500-something years before Christ over in the Old World, and the time that the Book of Mormon was being written here in the Americas was about that same time. So there's no way that Joseph Smith could have translated this book over, uh, from a record of here in the Americas and used that word synagogue. That's the point. There's also a number of words in the Greek that would have been impossible for Joseph Smith to have taken from actual gold ancient records that were written here that early and used them in the Book of Mormon. So that's what he, they're called anachronisms, and that's what he's talking about. Okay, I can't see the callers. Uh, it's this, uh, uh, this says, by LDS rules, if you kill someone, you go to hell. But you have to come to Joseph and Jesus if you go to heaven. How can they do that if Joseph is in hell for the murders he committed? Good question. Have no idea. Okay. Now, uh, let me see here. We, our callers keep calling in. It's okay. The operators are clearing your calls. We have a number of great emails. You know what? Uh, let me read them to you. From Patty, don't you really think that your message is of the devil? For real. Come on, tell the truth. Well, Patty, in what way is it of the devil? Is it that I claim Jesus' blood was sufficient? Is that of the devil? Is it that I say that he is uh, my God and my King and my Savior? Is that what you're speaking of? Is it that we say that the Bible is true and it's infallible and wholly trustworthy completely? Um, is it that he accomplished everything on our behalf and in turn we believe and love, uh, love him and have faith in him? I mean, what exactly, Patty, uh, is of the devil? So when you write something like that, make sure you, you articulate exactly what you mean. Um, by the way, last week I, I said a statement that the Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is um, infallible. Now, when I said it's not uh, inerrant, what I meant was the English translations are not inerrant. The literal manuscripts where Isaiah recorded what God said, absolutely inerrant. All the original manuscripts, absolutely inerrant. I want to clarify that because I, I messed up. But uh, the English translation still very, 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 very close to inerrant, but truly infallible. And if you want to understand what that means, go back and watch that show. We're going to go to um, Scott and Sandy. He is first-time caller. Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how are you doing, Sean? Doing well. How are you? Good. Hey, um, I just had a question about, uh, you know, everybody's talking about uh, the ultimate goal of a Mormon is to be a god. Um, what happened to Moroni? Why didn't he, why didn't he go to... Uh, become a god? Why did he only become an angel? Well, you know what they would say? If I was a Mormon missionary and you were asking me that question, I'd say, well, God in his heavenly economy, sometimes men become angels to do things until it's ready. Maybe becoming an angel was part of Moroni's progression in order to get to the place where he was ready to become a god. They wouldn't take it like literally that once you die, you immediately become a god. There is a process that you go through. There's some... Uh, there's some weightlifting courses you have to do and a few other things that are necessary for humans to become gods. So they'd probably say that about Moroni. 
Oh, okay. So just putting him on the temple and blowing his own horn all the time doesn't matter, right? <laughs> that, that's it right there. All right, man. God bless you. We're really being kind of light, but you know what, LDS people out there? You guys say you're going to become gods. You're messing with what we believe is everything. God Almighty. You are messing with that. And so we feel like if you're going to mess with that irreligiously and without much uh, consideration for our sacred beliefs of who God is, we can mess back with you a little bit. So don't get too offended. Really good call. Thank you. Okay, listen, Randy wants to know where in the Bible he can find eye for an eye. Does this include murder? Yeah, definitely. Uh, if you killed somebody in the Old Testament, capital punishment, definitely you had your life taken. Uh, they had some cities of refuge that, in fact, if you killed somebody on accident, y y it's like the family had the right sort of to go and kill you, even if it was on accident. But you could, if you accidentally killed somebody, flee to a city of refuge and have some grace and not let, they couldn't go into that city and kill you uh, in revenge. But it was that much eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Found in Leviticus, uh, pretty sure Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, but um, what was I gonna say about that? Capital punishment, certainly part of the uh, Mosaic law. And uh, even many people believe, certainly part of the Judeo-Christian ethic. So uh, I'm not going to touch that one tonight with a 10-foot pole. All right, let's go to uh, John in Orem, first-time caller. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. John? Yeah, this is Sean. It is. Hey. Hey, I was just uh, curious. You had mentioned last week that you were going to uh, talk about General Conference. And uh, just wondering if you watched it. You know what? It comes out on the 10th. Today's the 13th. So probably next week I'll give you the update. I've heard a few uh, really interesting things from my friend Rusty and, and people, but i got to follow up on it. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I guess my comment would be, uh, you know, I, I, I watched it. Uh, it was very interesting. Thomas Monson, right off the bat, you know, got up there, and uh, the, the first person he praised was... Uh, the prophet Joseph Smith, you know, there was no mention of Jesus. Wow. And uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're going to try to, to cover it in a, in, and at the same time stick with our ABCs because we really want to have this be a reference a year for people to use this stuff and know where to go. But we will try to cover the highlights, and maybe next week we can do that, John. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Um, Two other things, and, and maybe you have the references, maybe you don't. I was looking for uh, a reference from Brigham Young on uh, anti-Christian statements. You know what? And also, uh, where I, I believe it was Gordon B. Hinckley who made the statement that Latter-day Saints should not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now that was uh, McConkie in 79. Uh, or 80 who said that, but you can get all that information at utlm.org. All of it, just look up those quotes, and it, I mean, it's just a, an overabundance of information for you to pull from, but you'll be able to get them there, utlm.org. Okay. Thanks, John. Well, I appreciate it, buddy. Hey, brother, keep up the good work, man. You're doing awesome. Thanks. God uh, bless you. Bye-bye. Philip wrote, I recently read online that you do not believe in once saved, always saved. Is this true? How do you claim this if you say you are a Christian? Okay, first of all, uh, what is the sin that we do uh, as Christians? Uh, the sin is the sin of unbelief and faithlessness and denials. Uh, it's faithlessness. That is the sin that we are, uh, because if we do other sins, if we... If we uh, commit adultery, we steal, we rob, we lie, we gossip, it's because we're lacking in our faith in him. We've resorted to our flesh. And, and so our, our faith is really, and when we have faithlessness, that's the sin. Hebrews 10.26, listen to this. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now, it's really important to understand my position on this, and I believe many people's position. This is not the yo-yoing that we go through as Christians of failing in our flesh, committing sin, repenting, losing, having a crisis of faith, wondering if we really believe, not knowing, that type of thing, back and forth. Uh, years of being an alcoholic after we've come to know the Lord, I believe 
in those contexts, this is people and their flesh and faithlessness and working through that. What I'm talking about in somebody once saved, always saved and rejecting that is the idea of someone saying, I believe in Jesus and they absolutely never show any fruit at all of that. I'm not certain I would suggest that they're saying I believe in Jesus took. Secondly, if someone really was a believer and they turned and said, I hate God, I want nothing to do with God, I, I hate Jesus, I'm going to fight against him for the rest of my life, I believe that these scriptures uh, talk about that. Like 2 Peter uh, 2.20, it says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse than them for the beginning. For it had been better they had not known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Look at I believe that there is safety in Christ. I believe that he understands our weaknesses. We weren't saved because we were perfect. We're not going to not be saved because we're failures. But I also believe that a person has the right to say, I don't want you, God, and you will walk from your, you don't lose your salvation, you walk from it. And, you know, if you want to get all, you know, dogmatic on me, you know, you, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe once saved, always saved, well, I'll go smoke another joint. Okay, let's go to, sorry, just kind of really a, Let's go to uh, Randy in Taylorsville. Randy, you're on the heart of the matter. Randy? Yes. You're on the air, man. Hey, how you doing, Sean? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, not bad. I just uh, like to address the uh, David and roasting in hell or whatever they uh, believe. Yeah. I absolutely reject that because the Bible says that the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Oh. And uh, it even says here, and like you were talking about in Acts, it says that David is not ascended into heaven. You know, he, he's uh, like, he, like he told Lazarus, come out of the grave. Lazarus was asleep in the grave. I'm really glad you brought that verse up, Randy. I, I forgot in my notes to in, include in that. What Peter was saying to the Jews is, listen, you, you love David. He's the, king of, uh, of, of, uh, he's the king of this city, right? He was your king. You love that guy. David yeah. is laying in the grave over there. We can see his tomb. Jesus is not. He rose. David hasn't ascended into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. And that's what it means by that. It does not mean to the LDS who think that verifies that he, did not, he is not with God. It just means that it, he didn't do what Jesus did, Jews. Put yeah, your faith on Christ. I, right? I believe that no one uh, goes to heaven until the resurrection or goes to hell till the judgment. No, uh, you know, I think... I the, think... Bible, the Bible talks about the, the last trump will all be changed and the Lord himself will descend and the dead will rise. And yeah. we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. Yeah, but we're, we're talking about a couple different things here with a minute four left in the show. But bottom line, hell is Sheol, it's, a, it's, an old, it's an Old Testament word, Sheol, and what it was was a place that ha was like a, a place for the bad and a place for the good. Abra yeah, the grave. What's that? Uh, it's, it was a place for the bad. When Jesus died, he then brought those who were in the paradise part of hell, the, the resting place, and he took them into paradise. He took them from the place they were at resting into paradise. The people who were bad in the Old Testament remained in hell. Hell will give up her dead, and they will be judged and then cast into eternal punishment. So it's a whole yeah, bunch of hell, stuff. Even hell is cast into the lake of fire. So hell will be cast into the lake of fire, right. But, it's, it's, uh, Randy, we've got 15 seconds. Randy, we have 15 seconds, and so maybe next week I can try to top off and ex explain this a little bit better so that everybody's not totally confused like me. So we'll talk to you next week here on Heart of the Matter. See you then. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm